Waiting for confirmation. There it is. Okay, so I did my long, long study, uh, over 200 hours of research on the topic of divorce and remarriage. Then I did my long three-hour teaching on the topic, and that video has already been produced. Here it is right here. Um, and you can find a link to it in the description below if you're interested. Now, what I did in that video is I said, hey, guys, here's like every issue I can think of, all the issues and stuff. But I want to answer your questions. I'll take your questions and your pushback and I'll make a follow-up video. This is that follow-up video. I combed through over a thousand comments on the original video. Um, there's, I don't know how many comments are on there now. There's like over a thousand, well over a thousand. And you guys asked questions, some I had dealt with, but maybe not in enough detail. Others I hadn't even thought about to put into this long teaching video for whatever reason. So we're doing it today. Um, this is that video going through your questions and your pushback on my teaching on divorce and remarriage. Again, this is me. This is my best understanding of the topic. I'm not the Bible and I'm not the Pope and I'm not telling you, you know, like I'm some infallible source for you. Rather, I, I think I've built a biblical case for my position and that I want to answer you pushing back and asking questions of that case. So here we are today. You can actually find, if you're watching this after the fact, if, if you're not watching live, by the way, welcome to the live viewers. But if you don't watch live, you can actually watch after the fact and check out in the video description all the timestamps to all of the questions, like 29 different issues I'm going to deal with in today's stream. This means, of course, that I am not answering random questions from the live chat. I'm doing the video live, but I'm not taking your questions from the live chat. And I know my mods will have to probably say that over and over again today because some people are used to that. But that's not the agenda today. I wanted really to take careful, thoughtful time to approach these questions and answer them. So here we go. I've selected uh, 29 issues out of everything to readdress or address in, in the, for the first time or in more detail. Here we go. The first one is this question right here from In Thy Word who says, um, in Jeremiah, if you read more of what you quoted, God continued to say, although he put away and although you keep indulging, please come back and change. Does God ever truly put Israel away? If not, if he doesn't, this is an example of God's ultimate, is this an example of God's ultimate view on marriage? So what ultimately this, this question I got actually from several people, I got a lot of people asking the, um, the same exact question which is basically saying, hey, look, Mike, you're saying that um, that Jeremiah gives a case for divorce in some sense, but God didn't really, you know, go remarry someone else. And so this undermines your case. Now, what I want to say first to this is that I need you to understand my point. For those who think that I'm using Jeremiah to talk about remarriage, I am not at all, uh, in no way, shape or form, and I'm taking God's actions in Jeremiah as part of some case for remarriage in particular. However, it does have to do with divorce. My only point with Jeremiah is that God divorced Israel, the northern kingdom in particular. This shows that the position some people hold, that all divorce is always wrong, that divorce is both morally wrong and even impossible, that those people are mistaken because the scripture seems to indicate differently. So this would be like the Catholic Church's position. There is no divorce. There's just no such thing as divorce. It doesn't exist in reality. And so that's why they have annulment. And I'll talk about that later in a later question we're getting today. And this will be a long video. That's why I got timestamps down below to help you guys out, give you the content that you're looking for the most. Um, yeah, so my position is simply that Jeremiah shows that the never ever divorce, that that position is wrong, that that's inconsistent with God's own actions in Jeremiah. So I do want to add though, that in the book of Jeremiah, the return of Israel to God, the option of restoration, which we should give, right? Ideally, you know, 1 Corinthians 7 says, if, if you leave your husband or, or wife, 
stay single or get remarried to them. And this is when, when, when the bridge of reconciliation and repentance is still there. You, you, wanna, you do want to stay, uh, keep that opportunity open if possible, though there are justified divorces. And I get into all that in the previous video. So I do want to say this though, that um, God doesn't just say, I'm going to remarry you regardless. I don't care what you've done. He doesn't do that in Jeremiah. Actually in Jeremiah, to be more careful, and we'll look at the text itself, uh, what God does is he conditions the the rejoining of Israel upon the repentance of Israel. And that that is, I think, something we need to recognize. Jeremiah 3.13, it says, only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. This is a requirement. You have to repent, in other words. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I'm your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. What God requires of Israel is repentance, not just, hey, let's just get back together, end of story, no requirement whatsoever because marriage is indissoluble or something like that. That's not what happens. Now, this is a right heart example for us, like that if for some reason a marriage has reached that point where separation or divorce is happening, that there is even on the heart of the, the Christian who submitted to God, there's this desire like, I still want reconciliation. I still have that open door to, to see them change and transform, but it's okay to require them to change for reconciliation if it was a justified divorce. So this is, a, again, this is just one piece in my long case for divorce as a possibility, as an ontological possibility against the Catholic Church and against those who hold that view, not like a personal attack against them, but against their view. And that's in timestamp number seven on the big video. So if you're interested in more detail, go back to the first video linked, linked below and go to timestamp number seven to get more details there. Jeremiah was just one piece in several uh, a several piece case. So let's, um, let's see. I do talk about uh, remarriage being allowed for other reasons unrelated to Jeremiah 3, but that's, again, that's a different question. And I just want to take these one at a time. So let's look at question number three. Frank Tokars asks, if a person who illegitimately <clears throat> divorced their spouse is unmarried and repentant, and if their former spouse has remarried, may that person marry someone else? Now, the thing I want to say is really good here is the heart to submit to the Lordship of Christ. This is a good heart to have, Frank. Uh, I know that you're not saying this is your situation, but for whoever's in this situation, this is the right heart to have, which is, Lord, I, I just want to do what you want me to do. I don't just want permission to do what I want to do. But I do think we have a biblical case, a strong biblical case, that the person can remarry in this circumstance. So the remarriage itself, the, the former spouse, though it was a wrong divorce, the former spouse remarrying, if you take Christ's words quite literally, right? Or, or at least, I don't take it like with wooden literalism, but I think he meant what he said. And he um, he says that that is an act of adultery, that that remarriage was wrong. He had a wrongful divorce, so the remarriage was wrong, but the remarriage has happened. So now the new circumstance is you have an unjustified divorce coupled with a later ad adulterous marriage. Now the marriage should sustain, it should continue, I think. I think, and I built a case for that in the previous video. But this means that the other party who was part of this unjustified divorce, that they are now free to marry. They are now free to marry. They're free from that marriage. And I think that uh, the previous marriage is clearly over, both um, legally and morally at that point. And the heart issues are dealt with because you said that in the hypothetical, the person who was unjustly divorced, they're repentant. They've come before the Lord. They've dealt with their, their patterns of behavior that contributed to a divorce and their attitude towards their spouse where they were willing to unjustly divorce them. They have to reconcile this and deal with this for the health of their future relationship. That's a really important issue. I recommend pastoral counseling. I recommend a lot of serious soul searching. 
learning to see marriage as an opportunity to die to self instead of to please self and uh, getting those heart issues dealt with. Those are important things. But consider the alternatives, Frank. Imagine the alternatives. The alternatives, I see two alternatives to this in that scenario. Unjustified divorce, one party gets remarried, and then you're going to tell this party they still have to stay single forever. Here's, here's the reasons why. I would say either one, you think it's an unforgivable sin. So it's a sin that they simply can never be absolved of, never be washed of, and that way they must always live with the guilt of that sin. That might be one, one you know, thing that you can put on those people. I don't think that makes any sense biblically. And then two, you could just say, well, they're still married. They're still married. Um, even though this person has divorced and married someone else, that marriage is illegitimate. This marriage is still ongoing. And against that, again, look at my first video. I gave a lot of reasons to not think that that is the case. A lot of reasons. And so, yeah, I think we have good biblical reason to support that person getting remarried. All right, let's go to question number four. A fresh coat of paint says, can you address Leviticus 20 verse 10? If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If the punishment for adultery was death under the law, that would hypothetically eliminate the possibility of adultery being grounds for divorce because the adulterous person is dead. How then could the indecent thing in Deuteronomy 24 refer to adultery? Wouldn't it be more likely to refer to a woman losing her virginity before marriage or some such thing? Okay, this is like a long question. It comes in two parts. Let me deal with the adultery thing and then we'll deal with the reinterpretation of, of uh, uncleanness as... Um, you know, sleeping with someone before the marriage. I'll deal with that second. Now, a lot of people ask this question. I mean, a lot of people ask this question. I wish I had dealt with it in the original video. I should have, seeing the number of people questioning about it. But in other words, basically they're saying, look, how can adultery be grounds for divorce if adultery resulted in death, right? Then, And then the effect of this is that we go back to Jesus's word when he says, except for sexual immorality. And we say, well, that's not adultery. Porneia there, that Greek word, what, what it must mean is something else. It's got to mean something other than adultery. So we reinterpret that word to mean something else. I'm going to offer four points in response to this. And I'd like for you to listen carefully because these are important points. One, point number one, the um, the killing of adulter adulterers was not generally practiced in the first century by Jews. It was generally not practiced at all. That's really important because if that's true, then that means that no, most of these adulterous people are still alive. They're not dying. They're not being killed. So it wasn't practiced historically after 30 AD, and it may have been falling out of practice well before that, but it was not practiced after 30 AD. Um, this is in the Talmud. It specifically says this, that by 30 AD, they weren't doing it anymore. There's actually no record of official death penalties in rabbinic sources from the time. It's actually argued against. The death penalty for adultery is argued against in the Talmud. I know that sounds weird because the Old Testament says, hey, you know, this is what you do under the law. And so there are, are people who think maybe the reason why the Talmud, these later rabbinic writings, why they're arguing against enforcing the death penalty was perhaps to cover the fact that they couldn't do it, right? They're, they can't do it, so now they're going to explain why they're going to argue against doing it. So it sounds like it's something they're doing by, ch by choice, when in reality they have no choice. Now, this stuff gets pretty complicated. If you go to David and Stone Brewer's book on divorce and remarriage and you look at footnote number 156, you will get a slew of information and stuff to research if you want to study this in more detail. There's my short summary. It is complicated and you can dig in for more. A second reason why I think it wasn't generally practiced is because a woman divorced for adultery, 
um, was it was according to the the, uh, the Mishnah, a woman divorced for adultery could not marry the man she committed adultery with. Think about that for a second. They actually have a rule in ancient um, Israel, first second century, where they say, "Look, woman, whoever you committed adultery with, you can't marry that guy." Now, if they were just killing the woman on a regular basis, they would need they would not need this rule. So there were policies in place for dealing with the fact that the adulterous person wasn't just killed. According to uh, David and Stonebrewer in his book, where he had tons of access to source information, even though I disagree with his, his actual thesis on this issue, he says, quote, she could not marry her lover or the person with whom she was suspected of committing adultery. And that is in Mishnah Yebam 2.8. And you can look that up. Uh, in Stonebrewer, um, he suggests that we have reason to think this might go back to Jesus's day, that that content in the Mishnah, because not everything in the Mishnah goes back to tri- Christ's time, but he thinks we have good reason to suspect, and he talks about this in his book as well, that that content goes back. Now, why couldn't they? Why weren't they generally practicing it? Why were they just rebelling against God? Well, under Roman rule, the Jews were not an autonomous nation, right? They were a subjected nation. They were a nation that had a certain amount of freedom and liberty to to you know, enforce their own laws, but there were limits to that liberty. And one of the limits was the death penalty. They just couldn't put people to death for things in general. We actually see this in the scripture. And for those who, you know, the gospels, you're probably already thinking of it, right? Let me go to the passage, Luke 4, 28, where it says here, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up. Oh, excuse me. I, I, I jumped ahead of myself. What I really want to go to is John 18, 31. We'll come back to the Luke passage in a second. Uh, so, so when Jesus is standing in judgment before Pilate and with the leaders of Israel and they want to kill him, right? They really, really want to kill Jesus. Pilate says to them in John 18, 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews, how do they respond? They're not like, woohoo, let's kill him. Instead, they say, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's the rule. Like we under Roman rule, we don't have the ability to enforce the death penalty. So they can't put anyone to death, anybody to death. So they couldn't kill Jesus just like they couldn't kill an adulterer. Now let's go to the Luke passage and the John passage. Because here's where someone's going to be like, well, Mike, if that's true, then explain to me Luke 4, 28 through 30. Why is it that they tried to kill Jesus then if they weren't allowed to? It says, when they heard all these things, this is Jesus in Nazareth, and all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down through uh, throw him down the cliff but passing through their midst he went away then we have in in the book of acts we have stephen who is actually killed they and they enact the death penalty against stephen they kill the guy and he's just preaching the gospel and a mob just kills him and then we have this to make it worse to make it harder on me right in john 8 we have the passage of the woman who's caught in adultery and what happens? They, it says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, the, now here's the thing. They did this to test him to see if they'd have a charge against him. So they know that if Jesus is like, yep, let's stone her, that he's rebelling against Rome. And that then he, they can, um, they can say that Jesus is rebelling against Rome and they can get him in trouble and try to get him killed. Ultimately, they're trying to get him killed because they can't kill him. But what Luke 4, John 8, and Acts 7 all have in common is it's mob violence. And as we see even in our culture today, mob violence does not reflect rule of law. 
nor does it reflect normal normal things that go on. It's not normal that when you're just doing random things in life, mob violence happens as though you should take it as a rule. And this means this, how we translate that to the situation. No, they didn't kill people for adultery. It's just not something that happened during the time of Jesus. Not regularly anyways. Maybe perhaps in, in some mob scenarios it would. But there were a lot of living adulterers who their adultery resulted in divorce and the loss of financial benefits that they could have had if, if it wasn't their fault. That's one reason why this objection doesn't work. Another reason is this. Um, it was really hard to prove adultery. So even if you did have adultery, the, the penalty is death. It's actually very difficult to prove. You need two or more witnesses. Proving adultery is very challenging and hard. And while you might know your spouse is committing adultery, but you may not be able to prove it in court, so you might still get a divorce in that scenario. And then you'd have to have the question of, was that a justified divorce or not? And then a third reason, um, Jesus, when he used the term uh, porneia, I think that lesser offenses other than actual physical intercourse are included in that. And so it could have been um, something where, where people try to have like, well, technically we didn't have intercourse, like those types of things where they did all kinds of, you know, things or bestiality or, um, or incestuous things, which might not be considered the same as adultery, uh, but would still fall under porneia. I think that's why Jesus uses that term. And then four, here's the biggest reason why we don't reinterpret the word to mean um, losing her virginity before marriage, which means that Jesus is saying you can never get divorced under any circumstance, which I don't think is right. Um, we don't take it to mean that because see my original video, <laughs> timestamp number eight, where I have a long thing where I talk about what does the word porneia mean? And we actually show why the engagement th uh, theory doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So I go through that in the first video. I won't rehash it here. Now I'll deal with the last part of your question. And the last part of your question, um, a fresh coat of paint was, um, would it be more likely to refer? Well, I'll read the two sentences here. How then could the indecent thing in Deuteronomy 24 refer to adultery? Wouldn't it be more likely to refer to a woman losing her virginity before marriage or some such thing? Now, rabbis in Jesus' day were, were obsessed with debating over what was meant by that phrase, the indecency, the indecency thing. And I think I take a different approach. I don't think Jesus was even offering an interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 as a cause for divorce. I don't think he was saying whatever Deuteronomy meant by indecent thing, that's good reason to get a divorce. I don't think that's the approach he had personally. And others disagree with me here. But that's my view. I think he uses porneia. He doesn't use the word uncleanness. It's not the word porneia is not even the same word as the Greek word in Deuteronomy 24, the Greek translation. So he, Jesus isn't even using that word. I think he's offering a different solution to the problem. So for more on that, go to timestamp number eight on the long video. And if you guys like this, uh, kind of uh, tackling hard issues, thinking biblically about everything, then you might consider subscribing and learning how to think biblically about everything. That's my goal. I want to try to walk you guys through. There aren't really bells and whistles here. There's just a lot of careful Bible teaching. At least that's the goal. And dealing with challenging issues of apologetics and theology. And it's all free. All right, number five. Shelby Donaldson has a question. She says... Um, this should be number five. I think I've got the wrong one. I might have these. I might have picked the wrong picture here to put up. Um, I think I did. So I'm sorry, Shelby. I got the wrong photo up. I gathered so many questions. Here's what her other question was asked. 
uh, was when she asked it. She says, how does pornography come into play? Is addiction to porn considered sexual immorality and therefore grounds for divorce? This is also a question I received a lot. And I, I have to admit right off the bat, this is a really challenging question. And it's one that I find intimidating, especially given the rates of, of the use of pornography in our culture today. You are effectively justifying mass divorce if you say yes to this question. That's a pretty heavy reality, isn't it? Um, now, so I do think it's a challenging question. Here's some of the reasons why. Um, in the first century, pornography, like it is today, just wasn't really a pressing issue. It wasn't something that they were dealing with. Um, that you know, it's not that it, like the disciples had cell phones and they have like access to the kinds of insanely wicked things that we have access to in five seconds today. So, how do we apply the rules that we were given in Scripture to this strange and unique? but pervasive issue we've got going on today. In one respect, pornography is more than just lusting in the heart. It's, it seems like it's more because you're actually pursuing uh, images and you're, you're going to some degree further than merely lust, like looking upon one with lust. It seems like there's more to it than just that or a man with lust for that matter. Um, yet, Here's the problem. Pornography is not actual physical adultery in the sense that a person, you know, the two become one or the two become connected through the physical act of intercourse. Like this isn't happening with pornography. There isn't actually, I, I mean, I suppose in some forms of pornography, probably more rare ones, there's some kind of actual relationship where maybe they hire somebody or, you know, whatever kind of wicked things that we could get into and discuss. But I think in general, probably there's no relationship there. So it's this one-sided thing that's 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 a betrayal, that's that's a, a wickedness that is definitely adultery of the heart, but it's not an actual relational adultery. It doesn't seem to fit even the, the the types of things we're thinking about when we say the word pornea in the context of marriage. So my thought is, and I may develop my answer, my thinking on this more in the future. My thought is this: is that pornography in general. While it's wicked, while it must be dealt with, while it is atrocious and it speaks to the depravity of our society and even within the church, I do not think that it is grounds for divorce, generally speaking. I think that I, I, would, I would leave open the possibility for some extreme specific circumstances where, okay, but this isn't just pornography, this is this. It's this habitual, it's this consistent, it's this perverse, and it's this deep and depraved. There is perhaps some room for that, but I, I don't know how to make rules like that that you dump on people. Those are more like exceptions to rules. So I, I think generally it's not grounds for divorce. Um, and God give us wisdom as we deal with the depravity in our culture and society. All right, question number six, and this is Sarah Zimmerman who asks, and again, a lot of people ask this question. Um, Sarah says, I've heard it often said that a divorce disqualifies a man for the role of pastoral ministry ever again. Is this idea biblical or would his forgiveness in Christ make his past irrelevant? Now I'm going to spend some real time unpacking this one. Ultimately, there's this phrase in the scripture that's um, required of leadership. And I'm going to share with you three verses where we find it. And in Titus 1.6, it says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and dot, 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 gives a bunch of other requirements for leaders. You want to be a leader. You have to be the husband of one wife. We get it again in 1 Timothy 3.2, where it says that an overseer or a bishop or elder, that they have to be the husband of one wife. 
And then we get it again in 1 Timothy 3.12. And now it's being used of deacons, which is like a, a lower status uh, servant role in the church. But they also have to be the husband of one wife. Now, there are a variety of different interpretations of this, of requirements for people and leaders. Can pastors be in ministry if, they've, if they're single or if they're divorced or if, what if they're divorced and remarried? Um, can any of these people be in ministry in these types of roles of, don't, 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 don't forget this, it's deacon or elder. So we're talking not just pastoral roles, but there's other roles that would also be ruled out as well. There are five different interpretations, and I'm going to walk through five of them, and I'm going to give careful answers to them, because this is one issue that I actually changed my mind on as I was studying this topic in more detail. All right, so here we go. The first one is that uh, anybody who serves in leadership has to be married. That's one interpretation. They simply have to be married. It's a requirement, be married. Um, another interpretation is they have to have only one marriage in their entire life. So a man has to be married one time in his lifetime and no second marriage. So if she dies, if she, whatever, that he can still serve. He just has to have in the history of his life one marriage only. A third interpretation is that a man has to be monogamous, that he just simply can't be a polygamist. That was my view as much as like two months ago or maybe a month and a half ago as I was studying this thing and I came to have a different perspective on it. I still think it rules out polygamy, but that's not my interpretation of it. And then four, there's an interpretation that says the man can't be divorced. He has to be the husband of one wife. It specifically just means no divorce, no divorce. So if she dies, he he's okay. If, if, um, you know, or if he's married and still, or if he's single, but he just can't have divorce. And the fifth interpretation is he has to be faithful in the marital and sexual realm. That would be my current view. I'm going to build a case for why I think that. I'm going to walk through each of these interpretations carefully. I think these things really matter. There are denominations that have rulings based upon these passages about who can serve. And right now, they will not allow a man to serve in some cases if he's divorced. In other places, they will. It depends on how they've interpreted these verses. So we're going to go through them now carefully. Let's take the first interpretation that's offered, which is that the man has to be married. And I'll share with you why I don't think this works. All right, if we look at, say, 1 Timothy 3, put it back on your screen, and we interpret this, um, these requirements in that fashion, we should be consistent. We should have a consistent interpretation. That helps us know that our, our interpretation is correct, right? So the interpretation of verse 4, um, 1 Timothy, th sorry, 1 Timothy 3, 2, is there has to be the husband of, oh, there's husband of one wife. Now, um, for those who interpret this to mean the man has to be married, he has to have a wife, then they, they, they speak of his current scenario as this. One of the problems with this is verse four, where it says that he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So he has to keep his children in submission. This is, in our culture, these are trigger terms, right? But this is, he's a godly and, and good leader in his home. He has them in, in proper godly submission to, to God, to, to the government, and to his own parental authority. Um, and this would require, though, that he has children, it seems, if you want to be consistent, right? Because a requirement is he has to keep his children, plural, submissive. So if he's keeping them in submission, then there's multiple kids. So the guy has to be married and have at least two kids. Of course... That would also require that they're kids in his household. They, so if they're married, is he no longer qualified? What this is showing is the weakness of taking this interpretation in, in, that, in that way. Um, also, 
against this interpretation that the man has to be married is the fact that uh, Paul was not married. And Paul, you would say, well, Paul was an apostle, not an elder. Maybe the apostles were elders. They were special kinds, but they were also elders. First Peter 5, Peter acknowledges that apostles are elders. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he was both. He was elder and a witness of Christ, and he was an apostle, but he was still an elder. Now, Paul acknowledges in in the scripture very clearly that he is not married. He's not with anybody. And he talks about how that this has made it more, uh, it's made it easier for him to serve God more single-mindedly and be totally devoted to ministry. It's been a good thing. Yet, this interpretation that a, a, a pastor has to be married would mean that Paul is no longer qualified. And here we have Paul writing a qualification for leadership that disqualifies him from leadership. That should be a good red flag that pops up. Now, um, these same people who say that a person has to be married to serve in ministry will also say that it's okay if the man has been widowed. And so if his, if his wife dies, like say he's in ministry, he's been ministry for 20 years and his wife dies, they'll say he can continue serving in ministry. Of course, but this is not taking the passage literally anymore because he's no longer the husband of one wife. He doesn't have a wife anymore. This is a really big deal because nobody takes it that way. So they're contradicting themselves. This is an inconsistent interpretation. If widowhood is an exception, why isn't singleness an exception? If we go, oh, naturally, if his wife dies, he can still serve. Why don't we say naturally? If he's single and staying faithful in his singleness, he can still serve just like Paul. Paul also in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, again, like I said, this is, this is I think, a, a, an interpretation that doesn't, doesn't work at all in my opinion. In 1 Corinthians 7, 8, he says, um, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. And he talks about the goodness of being single and he goes on to describe the reason why. And he says, right, because you can serve God more when you're single. You can focus completely on serving him. So Paul in, in 1 Corinthians talks about the usefulness of singleness in ministry, yet they're interpreting him in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus and 2 Timothy. They're interpreting him to say that you can't be in ministry if you're single. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. So we go on to the second interpretation. Second possibility is that, okay, um, you, you can be married or you can have it be a widow or you can be single, but you have to have only one marriage in your entire life. You can never have a second marriage. And that's what he means by husband of one wife. This would be interesting because it would mean that divorce is the only pre-conversion sin that disqualifies you from ministry, right? Because you could be married, divorced, married again, and now you get saved and now you cannot serve in ministry. And it would be the only pre-conversion sin because it was only what you'd done before you were saved um, that would disqualify you from ministry. Paul himself was a murderer and a persecutor of the church and he was not disqualified from ministry. So he committed grievous worse sins and he was still allowed to serve. Now, I think that's one case. I don't think that totally blows this interpretation out, but I think it's an important point to recognize. Now, some people would say, okay, so, okay, only one wife, but only one wife, uh, no second marriage since conversion. That's how we'll interpret it. We, we think, you know, husband of one wife, only one wife since conversion, because when he gets converted, he's like a new man. He's a new creation. Except that's not what the text says. Um, it doesn't say only married once, which would be a clear way to communicate this meaning. It doesn't say that. Husband of one wife doesn't mean only married once. It means husband of one wife. If you're going to take it literally, that's just not what it means. So, and that still rules out single people from serving as deacons or elders, which Paul was. Uh, ultimately, taking it that way, I think you end up biting off more than you intended to. 
So then they could add the phrase his entire life or since conversion, but they're adding these phrases. Husband of one wife, his entire life. You have to just add that to the text. Or husband of one wife, since conversion. But you're adding that to the text as well. But in First Timothy, if you look at all of the, and in Titus and in Second Timothy, all of the requirements for the leaders, then what you see is a consistent desire for um, present character, present godly character. There's current character issues that they're asking you about, that the man is, is blameless, he's above reproach, that he has a good witness amongst unbelievers, that he's, he's not quick to anger, right? He's, um, he's not a drunkard. The man's not given to drinking alcohol and stuff like that. But if you're saying that we're going to attach, you know, husband of one wife since conversion or since birth, then you're going to have to say since conversion or since birth for all of the requirements of leaders, which means that almost everybody's not qualified to be a leader. We'd have to rule out leaders who, since their conversion, were ever short-tempered, lacking self-control, were not respectable, or were not able teachers. One of the quali- qualifications is becoming is being an able teacher. Well, I certainly wasn't an able teacher my whole Christian life. So again, we're just adding this since your conversion uh, arbitrarily, and it doesn't work when you put it on the other texts in the same context. Then there's 1 Timothy 5.9. And I think 1 Timothy 5.9, this was actually... Um, what really changed my opinion on this passage was realizing this is that there's this group of women in first Timothy who are being allowed to um, get on the rolls for basically welfare from the church. This is not government related, but this is church related. They're going to take care of, provide financial help for a certain group of widows. And there's requirements for these widows. And one of the requirements is an exact replica of the requirement for male leaders let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Now in the Greek, it is constructed the same way. There's just certain gender differences, but it's the same phrase. You know, the, a, a one woman man, right? Or a one man woman, depending on whether it's talking about the guy or the girl. So this is interesting because if you take first, however you take first Timothy and Titus talking about a, a one husband of one wife, you have to take it to mean the same thing applying to widows. And this rules out various interpretations. Because what you what you would do if your belief is that only one marriage your entire life or since conversion, <clears throat> if you believe that that's the meaning of husband of one wife, then you also think that you can't take care of widows if they have <clears throat> excuse me, if they have had a second marriage. So what if the woman She's 20, she gets married, her husband dies horribly a year later, and then she gets married at 22, and she lives till she's 65, faithful to her husband. He dies, and now here we are thinking, let's take care of her. Oh, but wait a minute, she had that one-year marriage to that guy who died. We can't take care of her. That's your interpretation of 1 Timothy 5.9. Does that seem like that's in the spirit of what Paul's communicating? And I think no. In fact, Romans 7 says that when her husband dies, she's clearly free to remarry. So how is she being penalized for this? And also... In uh, other passages in the epistles, Paul encourages young widows to get married. So he's encouraging the younger widows, go ahead and get married. And then you're afterwards having him penalize them for having a second marriage. Again, that view doesn't really work. So the second interpretation, um, having only one marriage your entire life, I don't think works. A third interpretation is be monogamous. Be monogamous. Now this was, again, this was my view. Um, Now against this, some say, well, there is no polygamy happening at the time. And again, this is not true. Uh, This is why I I didn't care about that objection to this view. There was polygamy among Jews going on for centuries still after the first century. And there was bigamy and not so much polygamy, but bigamy and concubinage going on in the Greeks. 
And so you had, you had this person who was a concubine. They had like a, a place in a role, even though they weren't technically a wife. So it wasn't technically polygamy, but this would seem to rule that out. Um, but what changed my mind again, was first Timothy five, nine, because it's not like women were used, doing polygamy back then, whatever Paul meant, it couldn't have just been about polygamy because women in Greek or Jewish culture, they were not polygamous. Like that just wasn't happening guys. And so it doesn't apply to them. It doesn't work with them. Whatever Paul meant, it couldn't have just been that. Now here, I want to make a point. I still think what Paul says excludes polygamy because polygamy by nature, however you take the phrase husband to one wife, it's going to rule out polygamy, but that doesn't mean its primary application is polygamy. So I've abandoned that view. The fourth possible interpretation is not to ever be divorced. Okay. So it's husband to one wife just means don't be divorced. One of the problems with this interpretation is it doesn't connect to the phrasing. Husband and one wife doesn't sound like you're saying don't be divorced. Why didn't Paul just say having not been divorced? Why doesn't he just say that? Having not been divorced. That would be the easiest way to say it. Husband and one wife having not been divorced. It just doesn't make sense, right? So um, that can't be the whole meaning, I don't think, of the passage. Husband of one wife doesn't mean not be divorced. A literal reading would just rule this out. And... Um, yeah, it applies to divorce, I think, but it isn't just about not being divorced. Again, with no concern for who is who is in, who is right, who is wrong. In Roman culture, say a, a man's a leader, the woman could just leave her husband. Like, I, I hate your guts and I leave you. Yet now we're saying he's disqualified from ministry because of something he couldn't control that someone else did, perhaps because he was a Christian and she was an unbeliever. Or Paul says you're not in bondage, but apparently he would they would be penalized and taken out of ministry. And I don't think that that's the case. I think it, this problem with the fourth interpretation, not be divorced, is it ignores the whole idea of innocent parties, which Jesus and Paul very much did care about. They cared about the innocent parties. So we get to our fifth interpretation, and this is my interpretation, um, and I'm not the only one who has it, but I, I, I hold it now, which is be faithful in the marital and sexual realm. The phrase husband of one wife can be translated. This is a good translation option. A one woman man. There's several examples of translations that actually do this. They just translate it one woman man because those are the three words that are there. One woman man or a one man woman in the case of the uh, widows. Um, this is a better interpretation than no divorce because it's not a negative about not ever having been divorced. It's just a one woman man or one man woman. I think it, it fits the application to widows. Widows bring them into you know the care of the church if they were what? Faithful to their husbands. They, they have the track record of having been faithful to their husbands. That makes sense with, with what Paul's trying to communicate about widows in that passage, I think. Let's see, I've got a few other reasons here. Um, it fits Paul's encouragement to singleness for ministry because it applies, it doesn't require that a man be married, but it requires that he's, a, he's the kind of man that's a one woman man. And so how, does, how is a single guy that? How does a single guy fulfill that role? It means that he stays um, celibate you know, and, and sexually faithful as a single man. He's not going around hooking up with different girls that would disqualify him from serving in ministry. And I mean, hooking up in the, in the worldly sense, not, not that he can't date girls to look for a spouse in a godly way. Um, yeah. So th that, that fits, it fits, it fits Paul's whole teaching about singleness and its usefulness for ministry. It fits that. It also fits how we interpret the phrase, keeping his children in subjection in verse, uh, first Timothy three, four, I think it was. So in 1 Timothy 3, 4, we, you know, we interpret, hey, he keeps his children in, sub, uh, in subjection. 
that this is this is like he's a good dad, you know, but we don't require that he's has kids. It's rather he's that kind of guy. This is the kind of guy he is. And we can see single people who are in some other ways we look for some other test to see their character if they don't have kids. Um, let's see here. Um so how is how is it applied then? How do we apply this into our into our daily lives? Um it means among other things, if it's about being a faithful husband or a one-woman man, it means that there is no polygamy, and that's per Jesus, who argued against polygamy. I talked about that in the first video. Um, it's also because of the phrase itself. While we aren't to take it with a wooden, you know, literalism, um, we aren't to take it to mean the opposite of what it says, right? He's still a man who's faithful to his spouse, and it seems the nature of polygamy is an unfaithfulness that's there. We also um, have 1 Corinthians 7, where it says that the husband belongs to the wife and likewise the wife belongs to her husband. That's very interesting, important teaching about marriage. He's talking about sexual rights, that your spouse has sexual rights over you and you have them over your spouse. It's not about abusing people here. This is about sexual um, commitment and um, availability with your with your spouse. And of course, if you are sleeping with three different women, you know, every couple of days or whatever it is, then you are not fulfilling this role. Um, also, the man stands as an example. The man stands as an, as an example. So I think polygamy in a leader of the church will inspire polygamy amongst the followers in the church as well. And so there's a pragmatic problem, right? This isn't some decision he's just made in the past. Rather, this is like an ongoing continued behavior and lifestyle that would cause a lot of problems for future generations in the church as polygamy would likely become um, more and more acceptable to the church if the leaders are doing it. It also means this, though, that the man, the husband of one wife, a pastor, a leader, a deacon, that they cannot have cruelty or wickedness towards their spouse. If they're mean, to the, if they're a jerk to their spouse, they are not qualified to serve in ministry. That is a character issue. How a man treats his his wife is really important for how he serves in ministry, and those things will bleed over. He can't have lustful character towards other women. A man who's who's just lusting and lusting and lusting. That this is a very serious personal issue that needs to be dealt with before he can be asked to serve um, as a leader in ministry. We need to see repentance there. <clears throat> now, can a divorced man serve as a pastor? What about that? I think the answer is maybe. It depends. Um, is The divorce itself isn't a disqualifier automatically. If he's innocent, um, then I think he can still serve. If the man is validly divorced or justifiably divorced he divorced because of the adultery of the spouse or something then i think that that can be justified and he can still serve if a man's invalidly divorced um at all it, he's disqualified if he's invalidly divorced from his spouse he divorced her wrongly um, and that and he's making a willful choice to reject that marriage relationship wrongly then yeah unless there's real character change and transformation not just proclaiming repentance i'm repentant i just need a couple weeks off and I'm back on back into the pulpit. We know we need like actual character change exampled over time before we restore this guy. The rush to restore people can be just as bad as the refusal to restore people. Um, now the remarriage, if, if the man's you know remarried, it depends on the validity of the divorce and his current character in that marriage. So second marriages um, are a second question that we have to ask of those leaders. Um, and even then, it's all concerning stuff because he is an example to the church. So you have to make sure that that example is being proclaimed well. Inevitably, if a pastor has unjustifiably divorced his spouse, I guarantee you he's going to get up in the pulpit 
and he's going to seek to justify himself. And when he comes across passages of scripture that talk about the radical self-sacrifice of marriage, he's going to water it down because he doesn't want to make himself look so bad. So it's going to affect the, the marriages of the church. And that's a really big deal. So current characters in view in all of these questions, all of these um, qualifications we see in First Timothy and Titus, uh, they're all about current character, not just past behavior, but they have to reflect current character traits of a pastor, not just recent reform, which might be temporary. Consistent godly behavior is needed, but repentance and real reform from the past is possible and welcomed. Otherwise, who would be blameless? Paul himself wouldn't be qualified because of the past things that he had done. So yeah, current character is the issue. Um, all right, let's look at question number seven. I hope that that one's helped you out. Justin Harrell says, um, what do you do when a spouse wants to separate but not divorce, leaving you in limbo? And I think scripture actually specifically speaks to this question. What do you do? First Corinthians seven. So this is, I don't want them to leave me, but they have left me. And here I am in limbo. Um, it says to the rest, I say, not I, the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And otherwise your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And that's a key phrase that I talked about in the last video. They're not enslaved. God's called you to peace. And then, and then he offers this phrase, which people misunderstand. He says, like, how do you know whether you'll save them or not at the end of the verse here, verse 16. Um, but what Paul is getting at isn't, hey, stay with them no matter what you might save them. He's actually saying, you don't know that your presence in their life will result in change. So you're not enslaved. Okay, you're not responsible for other people's free will choices to reject God, I think is, is the bottom line in that, in that verse. So this seems obvious to me. Um, what's going on here? <laughs> it seems obvious. Like if the spouse separates, um, but they don't want a divorce, they leave you in limbo. My thought is you're not enslaved. You're not enslaved. So, but let me walk us through it a little more carefully. So in the Roman world, they didn't have this concept of separation without divorce, right? Like we do in our, in our day, you could actually separate and leave someone on the hook for years, refusing to give them a divorce, making it harder and harder. They have to like force it, like legally force the divorce. And it can be a, a method of manipulation. It can be a way of messing people up and hurting their lives actually um, while you're sleeping around and doing these things and i've seen this happen but in the roman world no papers were needed in the roman world when you left your house physically when you said i'm moving out you were divorced legally like that's that's all it took was physically leaving so was paul saying since divorce um is unavoidable though this is one theory maybe when paul in first corinthians 7 he's like hey you know if they leave you then let it be so maybe he's like hey you can't control it Legally, they've divorced you. You couldn't stop it anyways, so you're off the hook. I don't think that that was Paul, Paul's point because that point would basically mean that the biblical case is, hey, man's laws equal justified divorce. So like if, 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 if someone legally divorces from you, now you're free. Now you're free to remarry. But this goes against Jesus, right? Because Jesus was like, hey, even if you've divorced, you're obligated to get back together. This isn't justified. Get back together unless it was a justified divorce. So then <clears throat> the legal divorce was not enough to separate things. There's something else going on here. Paul didn't apply this, <coughs> pardon me, to believers who, um, who separated. When a believer in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 and 11, if a Christian 
<clears throat> whether it's both the couples are Christians and one leaves the other, he's like, hey, don't get remarried, get back together. That's his command to them. So obviously just the existence of a legal divorce was not the issue. So what was the issue? The issue is the presence of a spouse who refuses restoration, who refuses to be married to you. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm just talking too much, probably. And, um, and they just, they will not get reconciliation. That's the issue. The issue is not just a spouse who leaves you, but one who persistently and consistently refuses the marriage, refuses attempts at repentance and reconciliation, refuses to listen to Jesus and the church, and therefore can be treated as an unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 7. That's the issue. This limbo position, I think, is an ungodly position for to tell someone they have to be in. I'm not going to tell you if to just stay there and be single for the rest of eternity. I think that that is wrong. So I've argued um, it, it's about an unfixable situation, this 1 Corinthians 7 passage, where one spouse abandons the marriage or is unwilling to sustain it and won't hear Jesus or the church, hence the qualifier, unbeliever. So it's not the presence of a legal divorce that makes it okay to remarry or the absence of a legal divorce. It is the condition of, I don't want to be married and I won't listen to you, Jesus or the church. <clears throat> that's, the, that's the situation. Therefore, separation which can't be remedied by real attempts to reconcile is desertion and grounds for divorce. Real attempts to reconcile. Do you hear me there? Real attempts. Heart-wrenching, real forgiveness, offering seeking restoration attempts it starts with me changing not them even if they're worse than me how long do you wait um it's unwise for me to answer this question um i don't think it's about a time i think it's about a situation the situation is that what you're looking for is this can't be remedied by real attempts to reconcile that's a scenario um at what point in time does that happen i, I don't know but here's a bigger more challenging issue and i'm gonna try to answer this and i hope god gives me wisdom and you wisdom as you hear it can you file for a divorce if that's you if they've <clears throat> refused to give you a physical divorce, a, a legal divorce, but they've effectively divorced you, they've left you, and now they're just stringing you along. In my opinion, this is you in bondage, right? They've tried to enslave you to a marriage that they've actually abandoned. This is a bondage scenario. Um, now, after all attempts to reconciliation fail, all those kinds of things, can you file for a divorce? I would say yes, I think you can. I think it's the legal side of what means what it means to not be enslaved. It's the legal recognition of what's already happening. The marriage is now enslavement due to the unfixable abandonment of one spouse. Should you wait? Yeah. How long? I don't know. But you're not enslaved. You can wait. Maybe you've been waiting. Maybe you're listening to this and you've been waiting for 10 years, 20 years, and you just want to wait. Go for it and honor God and God bless you in that. But I'm not putting that um, bondage on everybody. All right, let's look at the next question. This is from Becky Sampson who says, what about domestic abuse, such as verbal and spiritual abuse? Um, now, to the question of domestic abuse, abuse and domestic violence, I, I have some experience having been a domestic violence counselor for a number of years, having been in classes where we teach about domestic violence and dealt with real people and real situations, situations involving everything from someone throwing a burrito at somebody versus someone chasing somebody with a knife. And all of that's under the category of domestic violence. Uh, someone calling someone names, they call that domestic violence. Name calling is considered domestic violence. And so is choking someone. In fact, we have, this is the problem. We have one category for this massive range of behavior. And that's my concern. That's my fear. Domestic violence, um, in the technical sense, the legal sense, is too broad of a term. 
everything in it is bad, but not everything in it is divorceable. I don't think. So when we use terms like verbal abuse or spiritual abuse, these are two flexible terms because every marriage has some degree of verbal abuse. You shouldn't have said that to me. That was rude. That was cruel. Or spiritual abuse. You weren't honoring me as God has called you to. You weren't loving me as Christ called you to. Like you can, you can take these terms to justify any divorce and people do it all the time. I've heard a number of people who after deciding out of hardness of heart that they're going to divorce their spouse, suddenly there was abuse out of nowhere. There was verbal abuse. It was abuse. And, and they exaggerate how bad things were. And I mean, this is just the reality that I'm scared of. So here's one, one easy way to, to, to figure it out. If, if the abuse justifies you running away, running away, then it justifies you divorcing eventually, right? If no restoration is possible, you know, you want to have that bridge out and offer restoration because that, that's a kind of abandonment or forced separation on the other person. But if it doesn't justify, justify fleeing, but if it's just annoying and hurtful, then you may be called to just endure it patiently in many cases. Now, I want to be careful here because it's like there's like, a, there's like a slippery slope. On one side, my words can be used to keep somebody in a horribly abusive situation. On the other side, my words can be used to justify the, the violence of divorce and the wrecking of a marriage and the harm it causes to a family. As Christians, we are called to endure a lot of suffering in the name of Christ. And I do think that applies in our marriages. I don't think that we want to have what most of us would consider like actual domestic violence. We would consider that like, yeah, that's justification. Go for it. You need to, you need to separate, potentially divorce. But what we hear all the time is the conflation of they talked to me in rude ways. Therefore, that's verbal abuse. Therefore, I can get a divorce. And this is, it seems to me, obviously wrong. Let me share with you guys an attitude that we might want to have. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. It says, uh, Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And if you're getting a divorce and this is not your attitude towards your spouse, then you're doing it too quickly. This needs. This is the spiritual, and it's difficult spiritual work that you've got to do. I think following Jesus means enduring more than the world would ask you to endure. Often people quit without ever even trying actual obedience to Jesus in these radical ways. Now, situations can get extreme. Um, uh, I've, I've, for instance, there's this story I know of a domestic violence situation where a man would uh, deprive his wife of sleep. He, he, he slept on this job. He had a job where he could sleep. Some people have these kinds of jobs and he'd sleep at his job. But at night in his house, he would sit there in his bed, probably on his phone or whatever. And he'd poke his wife every like minute or two to keep her from falling asleep. I mean, he would just poke her. Now that kind of sleep deprivation extended over a long period of time is, is literally torture. Like that's actual torture. So all he's doing is all I did was poker. So he could minimize that and act like it wasn't a big deal. I would think that he, the guy um, could, could suffer a prison sentence for doing such a horrible thing. Um, and, and it could justify even divorce, that kind of torturous behavior over a period of time. But this is, this is the problem with the hard and complex situations of real life is that our hearts are so, when, when we want to divorce, our hearts are so ready to divorce that we can turn everything into a justification. 
And that's my concern. Uh, abuse is too flexible a word, yet it's, it's a word we have to use, we have to bring up, we have to deal with these crazy situations of life. A real abuse, extreme abuse does justify divorce. The question is, what abuse are you talking about when you say, I was abused? All right, let's look at the next question. This is number nine. Number nine. <clears throat> if a person becomes a Christian after an invalid divorce and reconciliation is not an option, um, the former spouse is remarried. Is that person free to remarry even though they did not divorce for the right reasons? Okay, so, <clears throat> hey, I, I divorced wrongly, um, but I've become a Christian and I'm following Jesus now. And the question is, can I now get married to someone else? Because it turns out my former spouse has married someone else. Am I free? My answer is yes. Yes, but. Okay, there's a little bit of but in there. But I'll say yes, because one, I don't think marriage is ontologically unbreakable. See my first video for that. I tried to actually build a case for it step by step. Two, the new marriage, that, that other spouse, they've remarried. That new marriage, even if it was wrong, it seems like it ends the first, right? Because it's now divorce plus sleeping with someone else. So that seems to now add an element into the mix that wasn't there before when the divorce originally happened, when they were obligated to restore. Well, now you've married someone else. Now that obligation no longer exists. So restoration is now impossible. Um, singleness now is merely everlasting punishment for the past. So I say, here's the but part. Do your heart work first. That person who divorced unjustly, I know you're a Christian now, but first do this heart work, which is, have you really repented over the attitudes and actions um, of, of treating your spouse as less than what God calls you to? Have you actually repented of that? Have you changed those patterns of behavior? So repent over those issues. Um, don't just repent over divorcing. Repent over the attitude and behavior issues that you had towards your spouse that led to that divorce because those will follow you into your next marriage. They will follow you. As soon as you get married, those bad habits will come right back with a vengeance and they will threaten your next marriage. So you absolutely have to deal with that big time. Um, okay, let's look at question number 10. Eric, who says, so marriage isn't really for life. Two don't become one flesh, no longer two but one. Now, I actually get a lot of responses like this on my video where, um, to me, they're just snarky and they're not paying attention to me. <laughs> I guess all I think, to be completely honest, right? Um, and I'm mad about it, but it's, but it's hard to take it seriously. But I realize how many people feel this way. So I thought, let me deal with it. Um, Eric, uh, my brother, I would consider you my brother in Christ, as far as I know. And um, I want to say, no, you've misunderstood me. Of course, I think marriage is for life. And nothing I've said means marriage isn't for life. The question isn't how long does marriage naturally last? The question is, can it be ended at all by anything other than death? Get that? Marriage is naturally for life, but can it be prematurely ended by something other than death? And the answer is yes. Adultery can end it. According to Jesus in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, adultery can justify a divorce and therefore you can divorce and end it um, appropriately, as, as tragic as that is. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, we have that they're, not, they're no longer bound to that marriage, that that marriage has ended. And great peril or harm, I think, can justify a divorce, which I've talked about in my pre previous video where I talk about um, um, how Jesus handled exceptions to the Sabbath and things like that. So Eric, here, you seem to just be assuming that marriage is unbreakable. That's your assumption. Marriage is unbreakable under any and all circumstances. So if, if Mike says... Uh, some divorces are justified, even though most are not, which I have said lots of times, um, that that therefore um, I'm 
I'm throwing marriage out. Like I'm just casting it out into the dirt and spitting on it or something like that. No, it's a covenant for life, but a covenant can be ended. So go to my previous video and please rewatch timestamp number seven. I think people just don't realize all the assumptions they're bringing. And so this kind of comment that I got from Eric here, um, who, and don't, don't harass Eric if you guys know the guy. All right, look, he's just, he's just working it through. He's talking out loud, right? But this kind of comment that ends up ignoring what I'm saying, mischaracterizing me, and just saying how wrong I am, I got a lot of those comments. I mean, of the thousand plus comments, a lot of them were like that. And I just would ask you guys to make sure you understand me so that you're not um, mischaracterizing me and end up, you end up talking right past me. All right, Daniel Jennings has a question. He says, if adultery justifies divorce, divorcing your spouse and remarrying, then why is the woman in Luke 16, verse 18, whose husband is condemned by Jesus as committing adultery, told that she is sinning when she remarries? In other words, she's the innocent woman. Why is she sinning? In that passage, you have a man who puts away his wife and marries someone else. Jesus says that by doing so, he is committing adultery. Then he addresses the wife who was put away by the man who is committing adultery, saying that if anyone marries her, then they are sinning. Just a thought. God bless you, Mike. Okay, so thank you for your thought. Let's look at the passage again, Luke 16, 18. And it says here, um, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, we often take this um, to say, we kind of we kind of fill in the gap a little bit, and we say, um, the woman is innocent. He who marries a woman who is wrongly divorced and unwillingly divorced from her husband commits adultery. It doesn't actually say that she's unwilling, um, although that may be the case, but I don't know how much we should project that onto it. But let's let's consider it. And then Matthew 5.32 is another parallel verse. Um, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, um, do, so th- this, is, this is my view. I'm trying to think of where to start here. Um, divorce alone is not adultery in this passage. That is kind of something you implied, I think, in your question, Daniel, if, if I read it right. Divorce alone isn't isn't called adultery here. It's actually divorce and remarriage together, coupled, that are called adultery. And that's the implication. That doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make the divorce okay. But it doesn't make it adulterous. So it's the remarriage that's the problem. Unjustified divorce plus remarriage, that is adultery. So is it really saying here that an innocently divorced woman who is committing adultery when she remarries, I'm going to say... I think yes. I think the answer is yes. Now, there are those who would disagree. Um, and you could try to find a way around it. You could say, well, technically, in Jewish law, a woman could demand a divorce, but the man had to write it out. So technically, he's the one divorcing her, even though she demands it. So you could say that maybe she's not the innocent one here. He's technically the, the one divorcing. But but I, I think we might be reading too much into the text then, too, because it, it just doesn't say whether she's innocent or not. It just says she's divorced. In every divorce, it was the man who did it, whether the woman wanted it or not. The point here is just she's divorced, and that's not enough to end the marriage. And that's the point. The divorce doesn't end the marriage necessarily. Our focus, or it ends the marriage, but not the obligation, the moral obligation to the marriage. So our focus is wrong. We focus on her being innocent, but Jesus' focus is on her it, the divorce being unjustified. It's, it's not whether it's mutual or not. That's not the issue. It's not whether it's innocent or not. That's not the issue. It's not about who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. The issue is the divorce is unjustified. So she is wrong to remarry because of an unjustified divorce. 
In an unjustified divorce, both parties are still obligated to each other. Or would you just say one party's still obligated? She's the innocent one. He, you know, the unjust, it's unjustified divorce, but she's innocent. She's free to remarry someone else. He can't. Like that's the formula now. So now it's about innocent parties and guilty parties when Jesus is actually trying to get to the heart of what marriage actually is. So I think our focus is wrong. The point is divorce alone does not remove the obligation of the marriage. This is a general rule, and I actually have some slides on that, um, which I seem to have deleted. Apparently, I deleted them. Anyways, I had some principles. All right, talk about this. But divorce doesn't remove the obligation to your spouse, even though it is actually a divorce. That's principles two, three, and four in my previous video. But if you take Jesus' statements as rules which allow no exceptions, this is where I'm going to get off the bus with somebody. If you take Jesus as though he, he allows no exceptions, that there's no further information that can that can be garnered after these events, like the scenario can't change, you know, six months later or something like that, I think that you're going to have a problem. For one thing, Jesus offers an exception to one of his rules. He says it as a plain rule in one gospel. Another gospel, he adds adultery. For another thing, Paul provides an exception. He says, yeah, well, if they're an unwilling non-believer, now you're free. 1 Corinthians 7.15. An unwilling non-believer, now you're free to get married. So here we have an unjustified divorce, but reconciliation is impossible because you have an unwilling unbeliever, won't listen to Jesus or the church. And I would argue, in addition to that, if you have a believer who won't listen to Jesus or the church, then biblically you can treat them like a non-believer and they fall into that category as well. So this... Um, I think that hopefully that makes sense. So seek restoration, uh, but you're not doomed to that indefinitely for the next 40 years. You're not doomed to that. You should seek restoration. And if they will not listen to you, Jesus, the church, they continue to rebel against, against that. They go off and they marry someone else. There's other later consequences that could change the scenario. I hope that makes sense. That, that would be my view. Um, <clears throat> what this does rule out though is this idea that if your divorce was unjustified and you didn't want to accept it, then you're free to marry someone else. That is not the scenario that I'm teaching. That is not what I suggest. Why? Because an unjustified divorce does not free you from moral obligation to be faithful to your spouse and to rejoin with them. But there can be conditions in which that exact scenario changes. And that's when that unjustified divorce is coupled with a continued rebellion against God and unwillingness and ultimately an abandonment of the spouse. Um, or if the former spouse dies, uh, all real attempts to reconcile fail, and they won't listen to Jesus or the church. After the separation, they commit behavior that justifies the divorce. They fornicate. They marry someone else. They extreme abuse. I think that, that those other things do come in. And that, to me, harmonizes all of the scriptures in question. And I think that's what we need to do. All right, question number 12. Question number 12. I knew it was going to be a long video. question is, how long is it going to be? My final video in this series will be nice and short. And you guys will either be happy about it or bummed out. <laughs> Depends on how much you like listening to me talk. Uh, Kristen Roberts asked a very important question I've been getting a lot recently. She says, what is with the jar of gummy bears in the background? Here's my gummy bears. You guys want to check them out? <clears throat> this, this jar of gummy bears? Oh, I like gummy bears. That's pretty much the whole story. A friend of mine brought me a jar of gummy bears. And I thought, ooh just as a gift. And I thought these look cool. And I put them in the background, nice, cool, colorful thing to have back there. And I like the way it looked and I like eating gummy bears. And it gives me an excuse to buy replacement gummy bears that I can just keep in my drawer and nibble on. And then I can dump into that jar to make sure that it stays nice and colorful and full. So basically for ministry purposes, I need to have a good stockpile of gummy bears. All right. Question number 13. <clears throat> 
Aaron Lamont uh, Lument says, Mike, could you please discuss the concept of divorce with regards to the events recounted in Ezra and Nehemiah? Now, this is, again, this is one of those issues that's going to take a little bit more time to unpack. Um, a lot of people asked about this, and I didn't cover it because it was such an in-depth issue, and I felt like it didn't relate directly, but it probably does. So in Ezra 10, we have over 100 divorces demanded by Ezra in Ezra 10. Over 100 divorces that are demanded by Ezra. Um, they're Jews who married pagan women. And then in Nehemiah 13, we have something similar, but it's a very different scenario. I'll discuss that later. Let's just talk about Ezra right now. We want to ask, one, what's going on here? And two, how does it apply to us today? What do I do with this demanded divorce? I mean, commanded divorce. What's going on here? And um, before I share <clears throat> the, the different views, I want to say this. Regardless of your view on this, it's not about race. Okay, this has nothing to do with race. I just did a video on interracial marriage. You're welcome to check that out. Um, this is about idolatry and sinful practices. Uh, you know, from, from our modern understanding of race, these would be the same race. These are people that all basically look the same. Um, it's about idolatry and pagan practices being brought into Israel and God's promise to Abraham about who would inherit the land. It's not about uh, racism. That's just us being unable to read our Bibles. All right, Ezra 10. Ezra 10. I'm going to offer you guys a number of different possibilities and of how people explain this very challenging and complicated situation. One issue is they say that in Ezra 10, where these <clears throat> 112 or so divorces took place, they say that this was actually ungodly. This is one interpretation people offer. They never should have done these divorces. Um, now, I've heard this. I won't tell you what pastor is I heard this from. Someone I don't like talking about. But uh, but anyway, they say it was ungodly. Like what Ezra did in Ezra 10 was actually bad. It was against God's will. The problem is there really isn't much to support this view. Does the passage say it's not from God? No. Um, does it, the passage so, show any disapproval of the behavior that they, they engage in, several divorces? Uh, no, it doesn't show any disapproval. So how do they explain verses that seem to show it was good? Well, let's let's look at the verse here. Ezra chapter 10, verse 3. Perhaps. There it is. <clears throat> Where they say to Ezra, Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who trembled at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Now, what do they say about this? <clears throat> this verse seems to imply, I mean, it, it doesn't say directly this is a command of God, but it seems to imply that this is a positive behavior that's taking place. They say verse 3 was only affirming when they say covenant with God and do it according to the commandment. They're only referring to God's command that when you divorce, you're to write a certificate of divorce. So they're, they're not telling Ezra, this is an act of obedience to God. They're saying, hey, let's divorce and will write a certificate because that's an act of obedience to God. I mean, it's possible. Um, the law itself does not instruct divorce under any circumstance that I see. The law saying divorce when this happens, that I don't see any verse that says that. Um, it just forbids marriage to these pagans in the first place. But but this is just seems like not enough. This is not enough. This is a, it seems like special pleading, right? Like it's just kind of like, well, I'm going to take it that way because it works with my interpretation. And it gets harder when you get to verse 11 because in Ezra 10, 11, we have Ezra himself saying, now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will, separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. So Ezra declares that it is God's will that they do this. Now, if you want to say that the people who gave Ezra advice were wrong in verse three, 
you can make at least you're, it's a little more flexibility there. But if you want to say Ezra, who is, it's not like the book of Judges where as you have like no good guys it, towards the end of the book. There's like, there's nobody to root for. They're all sinful and wicked. Here, Ezra is like the reformer who's coming and who, who God is using to restore Israel. And his final act of restoration is this action of having them divorce. So it, it seems like this doesn't work. This interpretation doesn't work. It, there's other issues too. Ezra 10, 14 indicates they're going to do this divorces. And it says, let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who've taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with, them, with the elders and judges in every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. So Ezra thinks, and he's teaching the people, that these divorces are going to help pull God's wrath off the people for their rebellion against him. It's quite a stretch to explain this away. The sense you get from the text is that this mass divorce is a godly solution to wicked marriages in this particular scenario. The the view, uh, their view, the, the people who say that this was a sinful act and it shouldn't have been done, is that Ezra has completely misunderstood God and misrepresented God in the text of scripture. And that is a view I personally don't tolerate. There's no hint of that. You've, this is just proving that their view is wrong, basically. Um, Ezra is concerned about getting the nation right with God. The whole book is, and this is what it ends with as like the climactic final act. Oddly, we do have record of some people opposing the, 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 uh, this thing in verse 15. Some people didn't want us to, to do this. And this is where you'd expect the heroes to rise up if it was a bad idea. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel and, uh, Josiah, the son of Tikva opposed this and Meshulam, the, uh, and Shabbatai, the Levite supported them. So we have these guys they're opposed to this. Now, it's not clear whether they were opposed to the, the method of going about this by having them each go to different cities and be judged by their leaders, or if they were opposed to the actual activity of the divorces. They may have been opposed. I lean towards thinking they were opposed to the divorces themselves, but they're not presented as good guys or heroes or anything like that. It's like it's just a record of the, the guys that opposed it. In verse 29, it, it seems that um, Meshulam might have actually been opposing it for personal reasons, right? Um, because in verse 29, Meshulam is one of the guys. He's on the list of guys who ended up having to get a divorce as a result of all this stuff. But Meshulam was a really common name, and so we don't know that this Meshulam is that Meshulam. So it's a, it's a bit of a mesh. All right, let's analyze this info. Um, more about the opposition to Ezra. More supported it than opposed it. Ezra supported it, didn't oppose it, right? Ezra said it was God's will, and there's nobody countering that with any specific information. The majority that did support it are seen in the context of Ezra as the reformers. And it seems off to assume Meshulam and those guys that their opposition equals God's opposition. At most, it shows there was a debate and disagreement in a minority of people. Now, a couple of the things. Did God command it in the law? No, God did not command these divorces in the law. It's not based on any command for divorce. It's based on a command not to marry them in the first place. And we'll come back to that. I know what you're thinking. We'll come back to answer that question in a minute. So Ezra, Ezra is God's guy. Ezra supports it, says it's God's will. Uh, he does it against opposition. He still supports it. And it's written about as though it was a godly decision. I don't think the case against Ezra being a godly choice or a right choice, I don't think it holds any ground at all. All right, let's look at the next interpretation. And the next interpretation is that these weren't really divorces at all. That what happened in Ezra wasn't mass divorce, it was annulment, or it was sort of just acknowledging that those marriages never counted to begin with. And this was um, in the comment section on my video as well, Tatiana J, who says, uh, not all marriages are lawful just because they're referred to as marriages. 
In Ezra 9 <clears throat> through 10, if someone is in an illicit or forbidden marriage, God doesn't join that. If God does not join that union, then a divorce, a civil divorce, can be the right thing to do. So Tatiana Jay's interpretation, and she's not alone in this, although it's a minority, is that these really weren't valid marriages to begin with. It was never a real marriage. Now, here's the problem. Um, this is an interpretation that doesn't have any text to support it. There's no contextual reason. There's no verse in Ezra. There's no verse anywhere in the scripture that says that these weren't real marriages. This is really important because it's just fabricated. This is, this is an interpretation that's made up and forced upon the text. And so I don't think that we should affirm this. Let me look at some specific verses here. So Ezra 10, again, verse 3. And here we go. Put that scripture up for you. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God <clears throat> to put away all these wives and their children. These what? These wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. And the phrase put away, that's a divorce term. I mean, that, that is a divorce terminology. That's not a term for an annulment or something. This is a term for a divorce. And so um, then they're going to do it according to the commandment of our God. And according to the law, and that, especially that phrase, according to the law, there was a procedure for divorce that they are probably referring to when they say according to the law. So there are these certificates of divorce and everything that seems to imply that these things are real divorces. In verse 11, we have another, uh, another statement where they're actually called wives. They're not called concubines. They're not called, that would be a term for someone who's not really technically marriage. They don't use that term. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. So they're called wives. This shows that the legitimacy of the relationship is not in question. It's the appropriateness of the relationship. Verse 14, it does this as well. In verse 14, let them uh, take their foreign wives. They're going to they're gonna deal with this, they, but they're wives. They're called wives. In verse 10, it specifically says that they're women who they had married. You have married foreign women. So the, the, the terms and the acknowledgement is that these are real marriages. Everything about the text seems to imply they're real marriages. In Nehemiah, when this issue crops up again, there's no hint of, of the idea that these don't count as real marriages. He called in Nehemiah 13, 27, he says, he calls it marrying foreign women, marrying foreign women. So the view that there's this, these are annulments, it just doesn't make any sense. It's totally unsupported. There's no verse to support the idea. And there's a bunch of verses against it. I think it's the result of a prior view on marriage that doesn't work with scripture. I think that's what it is. And I think that in the end, what you have to say is, okay, um, so marriages can be ended. Real marriages can be ended. And divorce, at least in some circumstances, isn't always a forbidden practice because here we have it being approved of by God in this particular scenario. Now, um, let's see. Uh, third interpretation is that it was proper and God endorsed it. And this is my view. My view is that Ezra was a proper and appropriate action. The, the, Ezra, the, the account recorded in Ezra was a proper thing that God actually endorsed. I've already shared a bunch of reasons why, I just by eliminating the other two views. Um, Ezra calls it God's will. In the plain sense, just read the whole chapter. It just looks like it's something God is approving of. So then we have to explain. we got some explaining to do, right? Um, why? why? Why did they do this? And then I need to deal with how that impacts marriages today. Like, does that mean marrying an unbeliever today is, a prop, is it okay to divorce them? Some of you already know the answer because you watched my first video. The answer is going to be no. But we need to deal with this. So let me point out a few random things to help give us context, good context. Only about 112, some counts are different, 112, 113 marriages were actually ended. 
So it's significant, but it's not what some people make it out to be. They act like 30,000 marriages were separated or something, right? It, it was actually a, a relatively small number, but they were amongst leaders. Um, and so they, uh, it was pretty significant. It took about three months. This is important. It took three months of them meeting and having like standing before the leaders and explaining their relationships. This means 75 days of actually examining cases to do 112 divorces. What does that mean? The conclusion I have is that each case was examined in length. Why? Because they had to have considered more than just them being a non-Israelite. There was more to the story before they would affirm a divorce here. So it wasn't every marriage of the people um, that was evaluated because only those who married pagan wives were even brought before the courts. And those were examined in great detail and carefully, 112 over 75 days in different locations. So we're talking about a lot of careful examination. What things might they have considered when doing these divorces? They might, and I'm going to hypothesize here, but I think it's, I, I think it's a reasoned hypothesizing, if that's a word, um, <clears throat> if that's a term. Okay, so one question would be, did she have Israelite ancestry? Because maybe she's she has pagan ancestry, but maybe she also has Israelite ancestry going back. So that can be complicated. Genealogies can be complicated. Another question would, would be, was she converted? Maybe she was a pagan woman, but she was converted. And how would you know that she was like Ruth or Rahab or Moses's wife? Well, maybe she would offer like a confession of faith or a rejection of foreign gods, or she, she, would, she would show knowledge of the Torah to show that she has been practicing uh, Jewish beliefs. Another question might be, were the kids raised under the covenant? Like, do your kids even speak our language? Do they know our laws? And if the kids don't know these things, then they, then they say, look, you are abandoning the covenant as a family. And that's a pretty significant issue for the Jew. Uh, another question would be, did the man abandon a previous wife to marry her? Malachi chapter two actually rebukes Israel for exactly that. They were leaving their Jewish wives and marrying pagan women. And this is, this is where God, the I hate divorce passage comes up. Um, that could be the case, but probably not among every situation, but it could easily be the case. Um, they probably would have had Jewish arranged marriages at a younger age. And then um, maybe, maybe a lot of them were like that. So the reasons for this mass divorce, what are they? Um, and they don't really apply today very well, but here's the reasons. Uh, the, the nation was being revived and it was meant to bring them back to the law. We're not under the law, so that doesn't really apply to us, right? We're not under those laws. So it, it's difficult to apply Ezra's mass divorce to our situation. Um, they were also re-entering the land and the issue, and this is huge. You have to get this. You will not understand this just reading the passage as like a Gentile, but you've got to read this and think about it with this in mind. Um, they're re-entering the physical land, which was a massive, massive issue for them. God had promised them the physical land. And when they entered the land, even in Ezra and Nehemiah, they're getting the land partitioned out after having been de deported because of sin. They're getting different sections of the land, depending on what? Their ancestry. What family gets what parts of what land? That's a really big deal. And mixed marriages mess this up a ton because the mixed marriages, when it comes to inheriting the land, it means that your kids are not really part of the covenant and we're now giving away the land effectively to pagans. We're taking the land God has promised us and we're piecing it out family by family to pagans, to non-Israelites non who are abandoning the, abandoning the covenant. So this may offer a really big reason, which we don't notice generally, which means that it wouldn't really apply to us today at all. Um, there's a specific concern though. So when I thought of this, I thought, but in Ezra, does it specifically mention worrying about the land? Is there concern for the land or am I just thinking, am I making this up? So Ezra 9 verse 12, we actually see this. I'll, uh, I'll take you there. In Ezra 9 12, 
it says, uh, therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Don't take their kids. Why? Because you want to leave um, the inheritance to not just your physical children, but to the children of Israel. It's an inheritance issue. That really is an issue here in Ezra and Nehemiah. So if they didn't <clears throat> um, show up to deal with it, the consequence in Ezra 10, if you don't get rid of these wives, look at the consequence. It's that they lose the land. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself should be banned from the congregation of, of the exiles. Look at this. His property should be forfeited. So it is a land issue. This, again, it doesn't apply to us today. But in Ezra, you're giving the land to pagans by marrying these foreign women and not continuing their commitment to um, the covenant. And so, hey, then you're going to be out of the covenant. You don't want to get rid of these women, fine, but you're out of the covenant. You've got to pick between the two. So then it makes a lot more sense to me. By intermarrying like this, they're giving away the land which God gave them. And a major concern in Nehemiah and Ezra is getting back to the land that God gave them after losing it through disobedience. Again, it doesn't apply today. The reasons, the results, sorry, of these marriages was loss of land and embedding pagan practices into the nation. Both things that, again, don't apply today in the international body of Christ. We're not, we're not part of the same covenant. For them... Intermarriage meant giving the land away and giving away the promise of God to Abraham. But for us, our inheritance is future. Our inheritance is eternal. Marriage has no bearing on land issues because marriage ends at death and our future uh, land, so to speak, is secure regardless. Also, I'll say that um, Ezra, the events of Ezra were a one-time event. It was never repeated. Never happened again. It was a unique circumstance. We don't ever see this being enforced again. In Nehemiah 13, we do have years later, a similar event, but all we have is Nehemiah rebuking leaders for having gotten married to pagan women again, but he never mentions anything about divorce. It's unclear to me that Nehemiah actually is a divorce passage. Ezra 10 absolutely is. If there were divorces, um, our understanding, I think will be the same as Ezra 10 because globally it's the same event. Entering back into the land, same kind of issues. Now, how do I apply Ezra to us today? I've already hinted at it a lot, but here's how I apply Ezra 10. As a possibility, um, ontologically, I'll say, sorry if you're not familiar with that term, but for those who say it is always, always wrong for divorce, divorce under any circumstance is always wrong, morally wrong, Ezra 10 doesn't work with that view. Even if Ezra 10 doesn't apply to us today, when you add the word always, you're saying it was wrong when they did it as well back then. So that view is incorrect. So I think the Catholic view is inconsistent with Ezra 10. It doesn't work with it. And those who hold to that um, no divorce view, not everybody holds that, but some people do. Also, um, I would say that it's possible that this helps build the case that, that there are untold exceptions, unique situations that might call for divorce, even, even though divorce is absolutely unthinkable under most circumstances of life. But again, that doesn't really apply to us specifically because we're not ever going to be under the Ezra 10 scenario. Now, is it finally, is it permission for you to divorce if you entered a marriage wrongly? No. You can't divorce if you entered a marriage wrongly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 very clearly says, if you are married to an unbeliever, stay in the marriage. Make it work. Honor God in that marriage. So we have a clear ruling in the New Testament that shows us that this Ezra 10 unique circumstance doesn't apply to us in any direct way like that. 
All right, so here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> I had no idea how long it was gonna take me to work through these questions, but I'm only up to question 14, and we've, so we're like not quite, we're about halfway through. I think what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna call it, this is gonna be the end of this live stream. I'll make this into two videos instead, because I just will not even be able to focus for this long, and then I'll end up not doing as well for you. So I'm gonna end this video. Um, in, what I will say is this, subscribe, click the little bell so you can make sure to get notified when I make the follow-up video. I'll do this. It'll be a little ways out because I have some big teaching things coming up uh, next week, Monday and Thursday. And I don't, so I don't know, it might be a couple weeks out, but I'll finish off all this stuff. We have a bunch more questions. I'll leave the, the questions down there, question 14 all the way through 29. So you can see what's coming in the next video. You can look at that in the video description. In the meantime, thank you, thank you guys for joining me. I appreciate your, uh, your excitement about learning carefully these topics. This is the first time I've taken an issue like this and dealt with it in this manner. So I, I love your feedback in the comments. Do you like this? A massive teaching video, a follow-up with your questions and comments video, or two videos in this case, and then finally I'll do a short synopsis in a nutshell teaching on the topic with direction, directing people back to the big teaching video if they want more details. Let me know if this format works well for you, if it's a good teaching format. Um, it's kind of an experiment. All right, Lord bless you guys. And those of you who've been uh, worried about uh, me, my family, as I shared some unfortunate news about a loss of a loved one in our family, um, I just it really encourages my heart, all the kind and gracious words you guys have shared. Um, my hope is strong in the Lord and my, my comfort and my spiritual, I'm spiritually good, right? But definitely feeling the sorrow and the grief over the complex and rough situation that our family's in. Um, and so I do appreciate your guys' prayers, but I don't really want my, my online ministry to be all about me trying to like share like a vlog of my own, <laughs> my own family stuff going on. I appreciate my family's privacy. I wouldn't even have shared anything publicly about it, except that I got the bad news 30 minutes before I was going to go live. And I thought I, I don't want to go live right now. So, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure everybody understood. All right. So Lord bless you guys. Thank you so much. And, uh, I'll, Catch you next time.